we're not monolinguals until the state mechanisms or some sort of dictators or some sort of enforcement mechanism walled out other languages from interacting, commingling, and surviving together. We, the academics, are the ones trying to destroy or suppress language ecology. We sound advanced, educated, progressive, liberal, whatnot, but we are the ones creating walls. We are the ones creating barriers. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. In our final episode of the semester, Sam Sharma shares his ideas for rejecting a hegemony of English or any state-imposed language and embracing human connection through a multilingual experience. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Today, we are speaking with Sam Sharma. Dr. Sharma is associate professor and graduate program director in the program in writing and rhetoric at the State University of New York in Stony Brook. He gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series on transcending monolingual worldviews. And we will dive deeper into how to magnify the impact of knowledge in academia and society. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Sam. Thank you very much for this wonderful invitation to chat with you about things that I deeply uh, love to care to talk about. Well, we're excited to talk about it with you and to hear more about the talk that you gave. Um, but we always like to start by asking our guests about their background and path with languages and language learning. So what does that look like for you? Oh, it's quite different. On the other side of the planet, away from my own home country, tiny Nepal, down south all the way to the northeastern part of India, on the border of Myanmar, the hinterlands, uh, where tribal communities spoke dozens of languages. And I, uh, the child of an immigrant, went to a Catholic school. Parents were Hindu at home. Uh, neighbors were Muslims. And that was a part of India that really doesn't didn't like the rest of the India. They were actually in a tribal warfare against the state. And in that context, it created a very dynamic language ecology. So when my parents moved from one town to another to move as they moved their dairy business, we, the kids, had to learn a new language. Otherwise, we would be bullied. So we learned by the age of 14, 15, we learned six or seven languages we were fluent in. The first of the language of home, Nepali. Nobody understood it outside the home. We're only 10 little uh, you know, a, a village of 10 families. Um, the, 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 at school, we spoke English, but that English was so broken, you wouldn't understand what we were talking about. Mm. If I talk to you now like that, I can't. That's the first English I learned. Then we learned the language of the, the country, Hindi. Uh, but we didn't do a good job because that part of India didn't speak Hindi. We learned much better the language of the state, Manipuri, which was sort of an onion layers of international language, national language, state language, region language, and then the town language. And within the town, if you didn't speak different languages, you couldn't make good friends. And six or seven layers. Um, and we were okay. 
Uh, <laughs> within a few months, we learned a language and then we moved on. Sometimes <laughs> we didn't develop good proficiency. Sometimes we did. But six or seven of them, I did pretty well. Today, uh-huh. I can speak four fluently. The three of them, I would need a week or two to revive if I go back in the community and immerse. That's amazing. That's that's quite impressive. Um, so in your recent talk, you reflected on multilingual societies and how translingual communication mediates life and professions. You also discussed various myths about language that set up barriers and inhibit free exchange and application of knowledge. Can you please expand on this for our listeners? Okay. Let us build on the language ecology that I just described. Mm -hmm. And that is not um, an exception. Other than in a few countries where a certain dominant language has become politicized and imposed upon everybody, and other than a university landscape, which are tiny little urban landscapes designed for the elites as barriers for the rest of the masses to this day in most places, languages exist in that kind of fascinating ecologies conflicting, uh, you know, contending for spaces, um, conducting life and business and society. If you think about how multilingual human beings have been, think about the constant migration and marriage, war and invasion, trade and education that they have pursued. And they've always crossed these boundaries, blended languages, destroyed some advance others, mm-hmm. but they always were multilingual in the house, in the family. I believe that we are evolutionary biolo- evolutionarily biologically multilingual. Mm-hmm. We're not monolinguals until the state mechanisms or some sort of dictators or some sort of enforcement mechanism walled out other languages from interacting, commingling, and surviving together, right? Yeah. That is the reason why there are still nearly 7,000 languages. That is the reason, in spite of the mechanisms of hegemonies and political oppression and suppression of languages, languages still continue to branch out and thrive. And if universities don't follow the mechanisms of the state, the authoritarian systems, or some sort of power structure, but instead allow the language ecology to function as they do in, uh, you know, in, 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 in their native form in society, then people will speak different languages to conduct life, business, and learning, mm. right? So we, the academics, are the ones trying to destroy or suppress language ecologies. Huh. We sound advanced, educated, progressive, liberal, whatnot, but we are the ones creating walls We are the ones creating barriers. And we do it in ways that are not so uh, nuanced. We say that you shall not speak in any language but one, because this is the language of opportunity. But wait, is one language more opportunity than one? What are you referring to? Are you referring to the opportunity to speak with your cousin, your neighbor, your friend, your business, your boss, your... Mm -hmm. Are you speaking of the opportunity to travel abroad, to connect, make connections, to advance knowledge, to share knowledge? Are you talking about the opportunity to mine the gold mines of knowledge from the past and of, uh, from a place uh, away from your home? Which opportunity? Yeah. We set up these limitations. And within these limitations, we call the opposite of opportunity, opportunity. 
There's no opportunity in a single language in any place on planet Earth. There's opportunity in multiple languages, in being, knowing, and doing multiple languages. Languaging is not single languaging anywhere. It is multi-languaging. Um, and so I'm thinking we need a do-no-harm language policy. As institutions, as scholars, as mentors, we should stop hurting, harming, suppressing, oppressing, repressing uh, languages as people speak under normal circumstances. If I go into a class here in New York or down in Kentucky and let students speak their languages, the ver their vernaculars, their accents, their dialects, then they will. But if I say you will not speak that Kentucky accent, but you and only you will only speak that this, uh, you know, standard American English accent, you will not write that style. I don't want your, you know, vocabulary. I don't want your accent to show up in writing. Then they will conform because I have authority, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, yeah. they will use all of these languages. Yeah, I can use six different Englishes. Forget about six other languages. Yeah, but I'm not allowed to. The other day, I realized in the middle of a meeting, after one hour, I had completely switched to South Asian English with my South Asian audience for a huh. workshop. And I was like, what did I do? I think I began with a more standardized accent. Yeah. But then the fact that I relate emotionally better to these people means that out of nowhere, I started speaking like, we need a do-no-harm language policy and institutions and individ as institutions and individuals. Yeah. That felt better. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. didn't even realize. And then I yeah. caught myself. And I thought, hmm, even <laughs> with an English, I'm multi-language. <laughs> I trans-language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's what I was trying to say. And I think we really need to be open-minded. We are close-minded about language. We are misinformed and disinformed about language. We believe in myths, such as, when I ask someone, how, what percentage of the internet do you think is in English? People will say 70. No, it's 25.9. Uh, I say, what percentage of Americans speak English, as a, uh, English at home? They'll say, all of us. No. Yeah. Yeah, it's very I true. I forgot the exact number. Some 16 million don't. <laughs> I ask, what percent of Americans know a second language that they use for conducting their community life? Yeah. Probably 40 plus million. America is like a dog that says, I'm not a dog, I'm not a dog, only in barking. We are a multilingual society. Hmm. We bark multilingually. Hmm. I love it. Um, so you've already begun to touch upon this, but I, I think it's worth repeating in the question. Um, the title of your talk included a call to action to transcend monolingual worldviews, especially in relation to how knowledge in academia is generally produced, exchanged, and applied through dominant languages. Um, so you've already talked a bit about how the suppression of languages can cause harm, but can you go into that a little bit more? And, and where, um, where does the predominance in our context of English come from? Yes. Um, so this transcending this monolingual worldview is about transcending this fear that if somebody doesn't speak my language, that I don't understand. And that's a problem. Is hmm. it? Well, Let it be. I get in the elevator. Somebody speaks Chinese. Why do I need to know whatever they're saying? They're not causing any harm. 
I'm the person causing harm. When I say, don't speak that language, mm. when I look at them in a way that says you shouldn't be speaking in that language right now, the elevator is in it. You know, the elevator doesn't say speak in English. The elevator says speak in a language you feel comfortable with your neighbor. Of course, if they want to include me, they can speak in English. Right? But yeah. do they need to? Do they have to? Who am I mm -hmm. to tell them that this space only belongs to a language that I'm comfortable with? Let them come feel comfortable. Who knows they, they want to talk about something they don't want to share with me? Isn't it cute that they have a language that I don't understand? Let it be. So the, 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 well, the first step is to become comfortable with the fact that we human beings don't dress alike, don't speak alike, don't eat alike, don't believe alike. It's okay. We don't suppress religions, fashion, food, personal freedom. Language is the same thing. It is a mode of expression. It's a means of communication. It's a way of being. It creates relationship. It expresses love. All of these things happen better when people get to choose when, which, why, where, whom, what language to use, right? And that natural language ecology is a thing to feel comfortable and proud about. Mm. That when we give each other space, we should feel that that is the way it should be. And that, um, that, that is the sort of suppression that we uh, need to pay attention to on a very microaggression level, very micro level, everyday level, right? But when we put actual authority on that, I go to the classroom after the elevator, there I can say, good morning, everyone. We are going to have fun in this class. This is the topic of our exploration and writing research and uh, knowing. I would like you guys to build on all of the knowledge you bring to this class, who you are, where you come from, what stories you have, what knowledge you bring, what science and technology and art and culture you can bring into play. But in that process, mobilize all of your languages, your voices, your music. And, and people and students do a far better job when I say mm. that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? I've been saying this for a number of years and students be like, what? Yes. When you mobilize all of our languages, you will learn English quicker. You will write better. You'll think faster. You will help each other better. And there's no harm in the do no harm policy. Yeah. Right? By definition. There's no harm in... Use your languages policy. And I have found it really fascinating that this fear, this anxiety, that if don't, the students don't speak English all the time, that somehow there will be an inhibit, you know, loss in it. No. I mean, it's like saying, if you use only one hand, Carpenter, I'll tidy your other hand on your, behind your back. You're going to back, be, become a better Carpenter faster. No. Hmm. The Carpenter needs both their hands. That's a great and analogy. And their tools. Languages yeah. are like hands and tools and machines. Mm -hmm. They're power tools, right? And so leave both hands, leave all their tools, give all their tools, let them, you know, do it they, the, the way they can. So anyway, it, it comes back to this idea of don't suppress. Just mm -hmm. let it be. Yeah. So from a practical perspective, then, thinking about, you know, classrooms in higher education, what does that look like in your classroom? 
Do you allow students to express themselves in different languages yes. um, using different? I encourage them. Okay. And I mean, you speak 4,872 languages, so for you, it is easy to review your ah. students' work and, and do that. But, you know, if you if you think about a monolingual teacher or maybe a bilingual or a trilingual teacher, how do you navigate that in the classroom? Um, no, actually, I oftentimes, when I ask students how many languages they speak in the class, I only happen to speak English as a common language with them and maybe one or two. Sometimes I've been up to four. Like, right, Hindi, um, Urdu, Nepali, and English. Mm -hmm. If I do have a Nepali student, we have 50, 70 in, in the university. So, but I don't have to understand their language. Spanish, for example, I don't fully understand. Chinese, I don't understand much at all. But the point is not that I understand this, this mythology, that the teacher needs to understand the student language. That is the whole point of multilingualism, that someone will not understand someone else's language when languages are happening in natural form. Yeah. Right. So for me as a teacher to say, I need to know what you're speaking. Is that Aurelian? I need to know what you're thinking. Mm. I need to know how you're relating to each other. I don't. In fact, here's the other pedagogical implication of that. After students have had small group discussions, I usually do not ask them to tell me what they were talking about. I start my class by saying, you're smarter than me. I just happen to know how to make learning happen. Mm. So. I'll make it, make more of it happen. Here we go. And then when learning happens between them as they talk to each other and share their knowledge and ideas and experience, I don't need to go to all the groups and listen. A lot of people's teachers are like, oh, every time you think about something, I have to hear it, right? Every time you do something with it, I don't trust you if you'll even talk to each other on, to on topic. That's not the point. The point is I don't need to know the language. I say I feel so good when you guys speak in all of the languages as you wish For example, if you're developing an idea, it's better if you, you, you pick the language that you feel most comfortable with, right? If you are trying to speak in an intimate manner, it's better best that you find the language that feels most intimate between the two of you, three of you. Mm -hmm. If you're reading something from a different, uh, uh, about a different country, try to read in the language of that country because you're going to go deeper into the context and complexity of the issue in that knowledge. You translate for me, I trust you. Right. And if you want to um, to use different languages in the process of writing, do that. Even when your ultimate product is going to be in English, languages facilitate thinking, learning, talking, discussing, negotiating, exploring, researching, writing better. So you mobilize them in the process. I don't need to be uh, surveilling you. Right. Mm -hmm. And that that is what teachers need to start feeling comfortable about. They're not going to invade the university landscape of English <laughs> outcome. Yes. Don't worry about it. Your English yeah. will do better if you yeah. allow other languages to be mobilized. Your right hand will do better if you allow the left hand to work alongside it. Hmm. Turning the conversation to the scholarly perspective, Uh, what does this look like for scholars working across disciplines? You shared practical strategies for how to mobilize all languages to help scholars magnify the impact of the knowledge they produce, both transnationally and within the U.S. So uh, please recap those strategies for our listeners. Mm. I would like to draw uh, our audience's attention to Stony Brook Center for Multilingual and Intercultural Communication. Just type MIC Stony Brook and it'll come up. And on the right side, there's a resource tab. Under the resource tab, there is 
a sub-tab called Language Justice in Higher Education. It is a gold mine of resources. Go there, and by the at the by the by the end of the, that resource, you'll also see an interactive tool you can play with and see where you belong, where you stand in the spectrum of moving away from language domination and oppression to language justice and inclusion. And that tool will also give you a feedback that says here is where you stand, and you can look at the you can see the interpretation of your score and say, okay, you seem to be here. Don't worry. Keep going. You are in the right direction. Okay, and I will borrow some ideas that we have along with my colleague uh, Professor Loredana Polizzi and me. We created that resource, and I want to borrow some strategies from there and say the first thing is to realize that we all have a very monolingual, very um, inhibit inhibitive, right? The very like suppressed languages uh, background. When I sit down to grade, I'm constantly red penning my students instead mm-hmm. of realizing that I, the student is actually trying to articulate something, and you know that little grammatical syntactic error is um, okay. Um, that is not the learning objective. That is not the student focus right now. That when I point, start red penning and and stopping in their tracks, I'm actually harming the learning process. So these are the kinds of things we need to unlearn. There is a lot to unlearn, especially for colleagues beyond the language and writing fields. In engineering, for example, there are so many language mythologies and ideologies that inhibit student learning, right? In in social sciences, in business, in the name of, okay, if I don't punish you for your grammar mistakes, someone else will punish you. It's a bad parenting idea. Mm. Leave that behind. Move on. The world has changed, right? So it's a matter of moving slightly away in these small little ways, the red pen, the uh, not allowing students to speak in their languages in class, assuming that something will go wrong if students don't speak only English all the time, assuming that students, if they learn to read and write in English, then they are doing something better in the world. They're not. They do the best in the world when they can read and write at the same sophisticated level in all the languages of their communities. Sometimes students might also want to learn a new language in order to make their knowledge accessible for a new community. I'm trying to learn Spanish at this old age because I think that I can connect to more human beings around mm-hmm. the world if I learn a little bit of Spanish. I don't learn it for me. I learn it for connecting with the world. Oh, well, it's for me, too. Um, <laughs> I benefit, but the benefit sure. goes both ways, yeah. right? So I think we need to unlearn a lot of things. This language mm-hmm. hegemony, language mythology is particularly harmful in the rest of the world. In America, at least, I said America refuses to admit that it is multilingual, mm-hmm. but at least in the academia, at least at a theoretical abstract level, at least at the level of awareness, we have become far more conscious than many parts of the world. In many parts of the world, life, society, and businesses are all multilingual. Usually English comes as a second, third, or fourth language. Usually English is spoken only 10% in real life and society, business outside. But the academies have suppressed other languages and tried to impose English, not admitting at the same time that that imposition is only made by a very small fragment of the society, the, Mm. the globally connected urban elite academic leaders and academic authorities. So if you ask, for example, in India, with a professor in New Delhi, what percentage of your country speaks English or 
can understand, communicate fluently in English, they mm-hmm. might send 70 or 80. But the real number, if you do the research, is 10 to 15. That's crazy. It is ridiculous because the, this professor is the ignorant person living huh. in a bubble. Yeah. There are few issues in life and society where pe- educated people are the most ignorant mm. and most upside down yeah. than language. Language yeah. is a domain of knowledge where the most educated are the most unjust and mm. also the most uninformed and sometimes willfully uninformed. Yeah. And, and it is time for us to really realize. And then there's one other thing that I want to connect with to your question here, which is the Internet-based neocolonial world order, not imposed by some British lord or American <laughs> hegemony, but self-imposed by the global elite that you know, adopts the neoliberal global hegemony of English and reproduces that hegemony mm-hmm. to dominate and limit access to knowledge locally. That is the most dangerous phenomenon right right now in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Across the global south, I don't know if our societies will come to their senses or if these societies will become the frog in a hot tub and destroy their language ecology and in the process destroy their epistemologies in the name of progress. I don't know. Mm. If education will help societies around the world make progress beyond the elite minority. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people around the world will really get the benefit of not just the junk internet, but the internet of real, relevant, rigorous, relevant uh, uh, knowledge for society. There is a bifurcation on the internet between the junk like that happens on a day-to-day level Mm -hmm. and the more rigorous, more reliable, more researched, scientific academic knowledge, right? Yeah. That scientific rigorous reliable knowledge is becoming more and more walled, paywalled, and mm-hmm. barriered mm-hmm. by financial, linguistic, political, and social class systems. Yeah. And if that becomes shrink, shrunken, the implication is dangerous because then people will not trust universities. When yeah. I was a kid, the way in which Nepalese young people, kids looked at the university and higher education was very different. Today, they don't trust it. They're mm-hmm. living in, a, in massive numbers to go abroad and make money and yeah. have, live a better life. Yeah. Education is pursued by people that are increasing that vicious cycle of exclusion <laughs> and uh, uh, lack of access to the yeah. general public. Today, if you look at the student loan debate right now in, the, <laughs> in this country, yeah. a lot of if people are saying, it's not worth it anymore. Yep. You know how we make it worth it again? We make it worth it again by making sure that academy is not a little walled community mm-hmm. that is not accessible to a lot of people, that lives and learns and acts in the language of society and profession on a daily basis, right? So that the implications of what we see in the global south are huge right here because we need to speak the language of our neighbors, including the Englishes of our neighbors, the accents of our neighbors, the regional dialects of our neighbors, they should be as welcome into the university as those of us who come from these global elite connected circles. And at this point, we give you a standing ovation and we will pipe in so much applause that I can't even, I I don't even, I mean, Sam, this is, this is, uh, 
music to my ears. Thank you so much for raising these issues. I think this is something that we all need to critically reflect on because, as you just pointed out, right, I mean, we are actually part of the problem, right? Yeah. We keep perpetuating all of this. And, you know, one thing that's um, that stuck with me that you mentioned during the talk is that you are mindful of the time that you spend publishing in Tier 1 journals and that you yeah. make time to share your knowledge, your research, your ideas on, you know, more open source platforms like yep. Facebook or whatever on a blog so that it is much more accessible and also yep. providing translation services of your work so that yep. we move away from just having everything be in this English-only modality. Or behind the paywall or yeah, exactly. only in high-tier journals. Yeah, what I started yeah. doing was, because I realized that I could, instead of let's say, going up for promotion in five years with, you know, five articles a year. I thought I can go for promotion in seven years with three articles a year, right? What do I do with the two articles worth of time? Somebody mocked me for writing very long Facebook posts, calling it Sam's Facebook article. And I'm mm. like, okay, SFA is a new genre. I will write Sam's Facebook articles five, hmm. seven paragraphs of Facebook posts on significant issues that demand public attention. They're read by about 3,000 people, as opposed to my, you know, journal articles that may be read by 2040. Of course, they have a different function. They gain, they, they earn me trust, as our colleague sure. Michelle Crow would say, right? And that means by simply inventing or rather following that genre, I'm sure there are other people who have done the Facebook uh, article. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> by simply adopting that new tool, I am able to reach out to a lot of people and, and these, but, but then that's, that's not just like the option. Let me read out the number of genres that I was reading the other day. Mm -hmm. Here it is. Okay. Op-eds, blogs, policy brief, policy memos, concept paper, position paper, conference presentations, some of which we already do, podcasts, YouTube, podcasts that we're doing now, inter interviews for newspapers, speaking on radio or television, consultation of policymakers, contribution to community forums, workshop for community members, reading groups and discussions series, writing research or research group or support group, research group or collaboration, workshop for students on, on you know, for all for campus community, faculty training, mentoring colleagues, mentoring students, strategic networking at a conference, and <laughs> The number of genres that our colleague Michelle Crow uh, mentioned during our yeah. discussion last week, yeah. uh, like reports to the administrators, memos, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, posts on listserv, internal communication, all of these are modes of scholarship. If we only see that only the journal article is a mode of scholarship, mm -hmm. instead of like the South Asian goddess with a hundred hands, mm. we only see one hand. We should see that all hands make that goddess a goddess. Yeah. Now I'm not a particular religious person, but I like the symbol. Yeah. Yeah. The very definition of the goddess is that she has so many hands. Right? We too can have a few more hands. Mm. A few more tools. Yeah. If you would like more modern metaphors as yeah. carpenters. Yeah. We should not be limiting. Of course, this is not to say that all carpenters need to use all of these 75 tools. That's not the point. The yeah. point is don't be selfish. Use a third tool, a third genre. Don't be so selfish. Look at that stakeholder that is right next to you. Engage that stakeholder. Make knowledge available on your network. Don't be so selfish. Don't tell me that academics are only supposed to speak to each other. They are not supposed to do that. We're supposed to serve the society. 
Don't mm-hmm. tell me. Somebody will come and translate your academic language into a newspaper article. There are so many ways now. There's no excuse anymore for us not to be using multiple languages, multiple genres, multiple mediums, and, and reaching multiple communities with our knowledge. Only the, I think that's the only way to make you know, knowledge open, available, accessible, and university education more appealing to the, to the broader mm-hmm. community. Otherwise, it'll become too expensive. It'll become very little supported. It'll become very little liked. And mm-hmm. small elite community will continue to dominate education without necessarily informing, supporting, fostering the ecology of knowledge systems beyond the walls. Sam, we could keep talking about this with you for hours or for days, but all good things must come to an end. So before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share a word in a language you speak, love, are learning, want to learn, that makes you laugh. What is that word? Actually, let me reconnect with the conversation that we were having with Angelica and uh, Michelle Crow at a restaurant last week. The word is, <laughs> as he's smiling now, the word or rather the phrase is, I'm just arriving. Oh no, actually, the word is, I'm still arriving. <laughs> I thought, hmm. When the waiter asked what we would like to have, right? For a drink, just like, give me some time. I'm still arriving. And I thought, wow. <laughs> That is a slight derivation of I'm still waking. In many languages, you really cannot say I am waking up because waking up is a binary opposition, right? Mm-hmm, in the language, mm-hmm. other language that I know. But in English, I had heard that waking up is a process. <laughs> okay? And in order to see that process of the actual reality, you have the, you need a lens of a language that actually has found a name for it. See how people invent words and phrases? Mm. And in inventing words and phrases, they discover reality or even invent a form of reality that didn't exist before. And when Angelica in that restaurant said, I'm still arriving, she was telling this person who speaks these other languages, wait, that is a reality I was not conscious about. (laughs) I just became slightly more intelligent because of Angelica's expression. That'll go straight to her head. Be be careful. (laughs) Uh, Keep inventing. Keep inventing. But listen, if you have two languages, your chances of inventing amazing phrases is significantly higher. There's research showing that when kids who speak multiple languages were given this confusing terms, for example, the word red written in green, the hmm. kids that only spoke one language just saw one thing. Mm-hmm. They just read the word, but they didn't complain <laughs> about the color. But when they gave it to the multilingual kids, they were like, this is red, but written in green. All right. Meaning they were capable of seeing more meaning and dynamic and things going on. They're simply, they're not smarter. It's simply that they carry more potential to keep exploring. Yeah. And using yeah. their intelligence. In other words, multilinguals are capable of using their intelligence more broadly, more deeply mm-hmm. than people with only one language. So we need to really foster that, even if we can only use red written in green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wonderful. 
Well, Sam, this was truly amazing. It is so great to talk to you. So important to for everybody to hear what you have to say. So thank you so much for speaking of language with us today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. I may have gotten a little passionate about it, but this is what I have lived <laughs> since I was a little kid. Yeah, absolutely. That's Languages. what we love. We love that. We love the passion. Thank you very much. I have a theory of language that says um, reciprocal language proficiency. Uh, someday I'll write about it somewhere. Yeah, but yeah. when I'm talking to a person, uh, the way I use my language is not in here. The way I use my language in the totality of the synergy between me and mm -hmm. the person or persons I'm talking to. Mm -hmm. And my ability to speak is not contingent on my ability to speak. My ability to speak mm -hmm. is contingent on the full ecology of your sort of giving me the inspiration to speak, your ability to understand what I'm saying, my ability to engage you, that particular person. It is only within that particular unique context that my, what I can say uh, makes sense, right? Yeah. So t okay. talking to you was like, you know, talking to someone who understands the same mm -hmm. species signals. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> yep. Awesome. Well, this was, this was so much fun. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And thank you for listening, everybody out there. What a way to end our ninth season of Speaking of Language. Call to action, people. Mobilize all your languages and speak them every day and everywhere. We will be back in September with new topics and guests. In the meantime, you can listen to our archived shows on our website at lrc.cornell.edu, on Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We wish all of our listeners a wonderful, safe, and happy summer. Until fall. Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu. Or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners. And do stay tuned for our next episode.